And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for being with me today. I hope your week's been going well. It's been a crazy week, and uh, here we are at the end of the week, and we are uh, trusting the Lord with every day. We're remaining steadfast, and we are doing the next right thing uh, in serving the Lord with every opportunity we can. So I hope that's the mindset you have this weekend. Maybe there's someone in your neighborhood that could use your help, someone who doesn't get out as easily, that you can say, you know, I need to go knock on their door and see what I can do to help. It's always a good way to show the love of Christ in your neighborhood and in your community. Coming up in the first hour, we're going to have Dr. Peter Kapsner and Dr. Jim Bilby. They were in studio uh, this week, and it's such a great interview. I just want to remind you uh, by after hearing this, that this is going to be what we're going to have more of on the night of March 26th, Thursday night here at the University of Northwestern. And then David O. Taylor will be coming on, and we're going to be talking about his book on Psalms. It's going to be a great hour. Let me take a short break and get things started. Welcome back to the show. Glad you're with us today. Dr. Jim Bilby, Dr. Peter Kapsner are my guests in the studio. They're going to be my live guests for the big live event on Thursday, March 26th. I was kind of joking about the seats. They're already going fast. So if you want to get a seat, go to MyFaithRadio.com. On the right side of that page, you will see the special live event with Afternoons with me. And then you can just uh, sign up to get a seat. Of course, the tickets are for free. You don't have to pay anything. Just uh, bring your lovely, amazing self, and we're going to have a great night talking about living in a post-Christian world. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, right. Bill. Yeah, Thank you've you. done this the, this live event before. Right? I, I have, mean, it's, yeah. been, it's been a great fun. Oh, from it's what I understand. huge fun. Yeah. Huge fun. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about uh, what is a post-Christian world. Yeah, Jim and I have been talking about this for quite some time, actually. I think you know we've talked together for the better part of 20 or so years, and we're both sort of evangelical church nerds that we grew up at sort of the height of evangelical power where church was sort of everything in people's lives uh, from Wednesday night to Sunday morning to Sunday night to really exerting a lot of social influence in our society mm-hmm. for sure. And I think all of us have experienced over the last probably 10, 15 years or so what has been a pretty slow but very consistent decline in church attendance, in um, church interest, and the rise of a lot of other ways of thinking in our world. And really, truly, in all of that, we've seen a loss of Christian influence in places like government and places like schools and other areas. And uh, Jim, I don't know about you, but I see a lot of people with some understandable angst about this is like, oh, we're not even a Christian country anymore. It might be some of how we talk about these things or Christianity is dying. Christianity is dead. And, and what we're suggesting is Christianity itself is not at risk at all. But this expression of Christianity where it exerted social power, where it sort of had its way, where it dictated the terms in our country, certainly yeah. that is uh, really changing. But there's a really important invitation in all of that as well. Yeah, Jesus Christ is is unthreatened by all this. Of course, right? right. Uh, you know, Malachi, uh, God just says, "I don't change." Right? Jesus is the same yesterday, t- today, and tomorrow. Um, and I don't think even authentic Christianity, the the kingdom of God, is at all threatened by the, these these changes in society. But clearly, there have been societal changes, right? And you can see this in terms of. You know, there's some laws being passed in our land that Christians are sort of horrified by. And we're like, well, how did that happen? Right. And then you go back and you study some history and you realize, wow, there's a lot of stuff in our nation that doesn't necessarily fit, you know, hand in glove with Christianity. How did that happen? And, uh, and, and you know, that doesn't mean there haven't been and aren't today 
authentic, sincere Christ followers in all different levels, you know, even politics, you know, certainly in different aspects of society. But I think the notion of of this post-Christian, or maybe better, post-Christendom concept is one that where Christianity may not be in the position of pulling the levers of society, right, and defining the terms of society, and being in, you know, kind of what you might call a position of power over and dictating to society what things look like. But that might not be the worst thing for the kingdom of God, and it might call us as Christians to be in a place of uh, being sacrificial and being, um, you know, Christ. (laughs) Christ says he didn't just come down to earth when we had our stuff figured out. He came down to earth while we were yet sinners, and so— uh, in a society that is is not remotely Christian, how do we as Christians still uh, live, love, teach, um, come around people, uh, try to encourage them, uh, show them a picture of a better yeah. way of life? And that's what I think this notion of it living in this post-Christian world is all about. I think it's crucial. I, I'm actually energized by it. I think it's a positive thing. Well, and you, you've written a book on transgenderism, and I teach a class on sexuality, and that's one example of, I think, how paralyzed people feel these days. They don't even know how to approach the subject. The norms have changed so much in sexuality. Just, again, for example, that would be very different than the Christian interpretation of sexuality. And many families that I know and many grandparents I know and kids I know, they simply don't even know how to talk about this subject or approach it or think about it or wonder about it, all of these different things. And so part of what you and I have been doing has been hopefully thinking through these things, but helping to equip and empower people to have these conversations, to shine Jesus's light in a world in which increasingly Christians are seen as sort of the intolerant minority or whatever that might look like, and beginning to equip in in a different way of life that really does still shine God's light in the world. Now, you two have been uh, not only friends and colleagues for 20 years, but you're starting a podcast as well. We are. I want to talk about that, uh, time permitting, but that will be uh, something that people can go to and hear uh, weekly, monthly. Yeah, at this point, we're sort of just building all of the libraries of episodes. I mean, it's funny because as we started thinking about it, right, Jim, it's just we've had the good fortune of being in academia for the better part of 20 some years and just hearing a lot of voices and having a lot of stuff poured into us. And this is, if for no other reason, Bill, we think about the nine kids that we have combined in our families, we sort of said that we wanted this podcast to be something that would be left behind for our kids to be able to navigate a post Christendom world, which is very different than the world that we grew up in. And, And how can we help our kids think differently about Christianity but in a way that is faithful to following Jesus, to giving their allegiance to Jesus for their whole life. And that was sort of why we wanted to start it. And we recognize, obviously, there's probably some other people that have some similar questions. Yeah, and, and I think for me, the, the podcast comes out of this place of, I've had the honor of, of teaching college students for 21 yeah. years. That's 21 years of really awesome questions from people that inhabit a different world than I grew up in. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm, I'm in high school in the early 80s, that's such a different world than today. And so the questions that are coming out right now and the questions these students are raising are so profound and so interesting and engage, uh, you know, how do we think about the faith in light of this and this and this? And it's given me the just the opportunity to try to just plow through some of these questions yeah. and, and, and think about how does Scripture speak to these, these big picture ideas. And so a lot of the, what d- drives this podcast is both our desire to, um, to 
articulate these things for our kids' generation, mm-hmm. but are also the our past students. We I want to like do justice to <laughs> their right. great questions that yeah, have right. shaped my understanding over all these years. Right. So, uh, Jim, you wrote a book on transgenderism, and Peter, you teach a class uh, here on human sexuality. What are some of the questions that are coming up all the time? Yeah, I, well, I think one of the main ones is simply, so what do we do when family member X or family member Y comes out and says that they are gay or they are lesbian or they're transgender or something? Uh, so many people feel terribly paralyzed. And, and certainly in my class, and Jim, I know you do a lot of this work too, it's one thing to sort of understand the issues and understand biblically and maybe theologically and historically and scientifically. And all of those things are really important for people. But I think the main question that I see right now is simply, what do I do when my son decides to come to me and, and, and says that I am gay? And how do I live that out? How do I walk out life with them? Do I have to cast them out of the home? Do I walk alongside of them? Like simply, what do I do in these circumstances? I think it's probably the most common question that I get today. It's actually a different question than even 10 years ago. That question wouldn't have even been on the radar 10, 10 years ago. And it tells you how fast some of the sexual norms have changed in sort of this post-Christendom world. Yeah, I mean, and that's exactly it. The, the conversations are changing. The terms are changing the landscape is changing, right? How long ago was it that the Supreme Court decision Oberfell came down? Yeah, it's about five, five right? six years it's, ago, right? It's yeah. five-ish years ago. Um, before that, five years before that, there was a rash of marriage amendments in our society that were being passed, that there are all these – it seemed like you know the Christians were finally winning the, the gay marriage battle, and then suddenly it's shifted, and now you do uh, um, uh, research on this, you do polls on this – and support for gay marriage is low 70s, high 60s percent in our society. And that's like just what changed. And I think some of this is just unpacking what did people always, what were they aiming at when they were saying we're defending Christian marriage, right? And we're defending this picture of marriage. And so often I think that got colored with, well, we're defending you have to look like this and you have to keep these appearances, but it's not about an authentic covenant relationship because there's so many people, mm-hmm. so many Christians that are like defending Christian marriage right until, you know, that really cute secretary walked in the door and then we'll jettison the Christian right. marriage thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the, our, the notion of marriage that, uh, you know, has been complicated to some degree by the actions of people who have called themselves Christians. Mm-hmm. Right. And we've we've been discombobulated by that. And so some of this is saying, suppose we just don't, you know, assume what whatever local televangelist is saying right Mm -hmm. about all these things. What does it mean to follow Christ in every area of your life? That's, I think, the crucial question. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a little break. Is that cool? I love it. We'll be right back with Dr. Jim Bilby, Dr. Peter Kapsner. Make sure you go to MyFaithRadio.com. Make sure you get a seat for that event coming up March 26th. Be right back. from the future is Dr. Peter Kaffner and Dr. Jim Bilby, and they are back saying everything's fine, so that's great. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and there will be part of our big um, night on March 26th, a Thursday night. Make sure you get 
tickets. Tickets are free. Just go to MyFaithRadio.com and say, I want to come be part of that. Living in a post-Christian world, to be honest, guys, some of that sounds pretty scary. How are you going to help us process that? Yeah, well, I think it is scary, right, Jim? I mean, I, yeah, I think the, the landscape has done nothing but shift for Christians over these last 20 years, I think, in ways that we're both aware of and ways that maybe we're not aware of. But what we know for sure, it's, it's shifted. And I mean, I think about even such things. This isn't just about sexuality shifting. This is about the idea of the authority of the scriptures shifting. And, and certainly behind the scenes in academia, there's been a pretty sustained and sometimes vicious attack on the viability of the scriptures as a guide for life. And uh, and so even just answering some of those kinds of questions, very different than 20, 25, 30 years ago in the church, where it was assumed that the scriptures were a place to go as, as a sense of authority. However you understood them, you wanted to go to them as a place of authority. And that certainly has been under attack. Uh, the ideas of just even what constitutes family uh, is under attack. Even uh, church's business is no longer sort of a viable option anymore. I mean, churches cannot economically sustain themselves from a business standpoint, unless you're a large streaming multi-campus church these days. And so that has changed for a lot of people where you don't have your local community church anymore. You, you sort of stream something in, maybe in a gymnasium at best. And so stuff has changed and endless, endless topics. And when things change as rapidly and as regularly as they do, it does create anxiety because we don't necessarily know where to plant our feet. Yeah, and, and I think uh, there may be some people out there listening that are, you know, older generation that are 65, 70, 75 years old, and, and, they, and you might be looking around and you're saying, no, it doesn't seem like things are that different for me. There's, you know, weird things going on in politics and the world and things, but maybe your life is pretty clear and your your practice of faith is is pre, pretty much it feels pretty similar and maybe your church feels pretty similar but where this is being seen most clearly is in the responses and engagement of younger people with the faith and mm-hmm. so there's this uh group of people that are called the nuns and what they're called the nuns because they are asked questions what is your church involvement and they you know tick down the various options and you know, I'm Roman Catholic, Catholic, and I'm Baptist, and I'm Lutheran, and then the last one is none. And the number of people that would have in my generation, so I graduated high school in 85, in my generation, the number of people that would have checked that box as none was low single digits, right? right? So maybe as high as 6% or something in that neighborhood. Um, but now that number is high 30s, you know, pushing yep. 40% of people that are... Uh, 18 to 35. Um, so just has gone through the mm-hmm. roof. And so some of this, these conversations about what does it mean to live in a post-Christian world is living in a world where this the num- younger generation just does not look at institutional church in the exact same way that we did, that they, there are, that their perspective has been radically shifted. They may still, and there's even a term, the, they may be faithful nuns. They may still have some sort of faith, but they don't see that faith articulated in any traditional church. And so what we have is a societal shift of, I think, pretty epic proportions. Yes. And Peter, I think you're right. We're still figuring out what this looks like. Yeah, certainly. It's working out in all sorts of ways, but it's it's a really significant shift that we have to grapple with. And I think the heart of it is that Christians no longer have the social kind of power that they were once used to wielding, to having the influence that they had. And that loss of power, I think, again, creates this perception that is understandable, but I think is a big miss, that as you said earlier, Jim, Christianity itself is not at risk. Jesus's kingdom is not at risk 
but the way that we function within this world is needing to shift. I mean, just even the sort of the collision of world religions that I wouldn't have grown up with just because we didn't do a lot of airplane travel and a lot of internet. We we might have heard of exotic world religions like Hinduism or Buddhism or some of these other religious patterns, but we wouldn't be asking questions, should we start our worship service with yoga? And certainly there's plenty of faithful evangelical covenant kinds of churches that are beginning to incorporate different kind of religious practices along those lines, and people have a lot of questions about them. So it's I think it's one of my favorite things to think about with the event, Bill, is that I had an opportunity to be in a couple of churches just doing some different talks over the past couple months. And the time that was the most electric of that whole time was just the question and answer time. I mean, Jim and I are not going to sit here and monologue for 15, 20, 30 minutes on that evening. It's it's a time where we can just dialogue and ask these questions. And it was that time was fabulous and fascinating in the church. I think a lot of people have a lot of questions. Yeah, and I've ordered the chicken wire fence. <laughs> so there will be a barrier between you and Perfect, the audience. Yeah, especially yeah, when I mean, stop the tomatoes for exactly. sure. So, yeah, indeed. Exactly. All right, let's talk about uh, power over, power under. What does that mean? Yeah, you have a pretty good description. I mean, really, uh, Jim, I mean, we just talked about it in our podcast a little bit about the difference between power over and power under. Yeah, so think of the language of power over is let you know i'll just i'll use think of it for me as a teacher uh as a teacher i am power over if i'm like students you have to believe this you don't believe this you don't pass so you do right? me yeah well i'm clearly i mean but you're wrong so yeah. <laughs> clearly no i mean so that power over mindset is i dictate this is you believe this you believe this you believe this you believe this and i indoctrinate them into all these things and then i pass them if they can spit back all the right information uh, power under sort of mindset in a teaching context. Uh, sure, I'm going to define some of the key terms. What do we mean by this term? What is the issue? What are the debates? What are the history? But then I'm going to seek to try to enable them to engage these conversations for their own. So I'm going to, instead of teaching, this is what you believe, I'm going to teach, here's one way of thinking about this. And here's some strengths associated with that. And here's some weaknesses. Here's a different view, right? And, you know, maybe a lot of Christians don't believe this, but you know, here's uh, why some people would hold this view. And the advantage of this is that I, I think there's an old adage that if you only know one view on a particular issue, you don't even know that one view. Hmm. That we, only, we best understand even the views that we currently hold by truly understanding what different people might hold on these. So a power under perspective, again, in this context of teaching, tries to enable, tries to empower and tries to help people make decisions for themselves. Let's be honest. This is what we do with our, with our kids. Yeah. We hopefully, um, sure, we, you know, when they're little, if they're running in the street, we, we grab them. We, we pick them up out of harm's way. We don't let them run in the street. But as they get older, we try to give them more and more responsibility so they can make good decisions for themselves. Um, and so this power under perspective from a, from a Christian perspective maybe means that we are not going to be in the position of pulling the levers of power in culture, that we don't get to define the terms of the discussion. But you know what? We're still going to be present in that culture, in the world, not of the world, Mm -hmm. but in the world and engaging people and loving people and trying to show people a different picture of what it looks like to live a kingdom world. Yeah, and there's nothing relative about what you're saying. You're not not advocating for a relativism that just says, hey, kind of you decide what you want to believe. It is a different method of inviting people into the kingdom besides sort of forced conversion or using a position of power or a place of power to tell somebody what to think. It's simply inviting them into the beauty and wonder of God's kingdom in a way that kind of you're more of a guide you sort of lead them. And the way of leading is always through the lens of love in God's kingdom. It's a willingness to sacrifice your own well-being for their well-being. 
And boy, if we Christians could learn to shine that kind of light in the world, where it's not about our comfort and it's not about making sure we find our church and church shop for what matters to us and it better be the right product and all of the ways that I think, again, we understandably think about these things, but maybe there's an opportunity in light of the loss of social power to find the authentic way of God's kingdom love. You know, let's be honest. If, we, if this was all about just getting people to say, I'm a Christian and right. that was enough, then you threaten them, you cajole them. The Crusaders them, you, are awesome at that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, then that's what you do. But if this is truly about a relationship, which I think we believe, then you cannot threaten anybody into love. You cannot, you know, intimidate somebody. You cannot force that somebody into committing their life to Jesus Christ. And so as a relationship, it has to be something that they make their own. And so how do we come around them? How do we support them? How do we encourage this decision to be made on their own, with their own. So that's the notion of power under is that we don't have any, it's giving up on the illusion of control Mm because let's be honest, it's always been an illusion. We've never really had the control over society, over government, uh, over our kids that we have maybe wanted to have. And so what do we do if we are instead of, instead of trying to come from that power over perspective, if we are swapping that out for a power under perspective, I think that's, that, that's the essence of, the, of what we're trying to talk about here. Yeah. I think it's going to be a spectacular night. And if you, are, um, if you have not made plans, you're going to want to do that today. Go to MyFaithRadio.com. Come to the live event uh, with me. It's going to be March 26th, a Thursday night. Just as a point of reference, the Twins open their season that afternoon. <laughs> so we will be celebrating a big victory we over, over the Oakland w, Athletics. Yep. And then we'll be all in a good mood, right? <laughs> For sure. And so bring your questions. I'm still figuring out if I'm going to order the dunk tank or not. So <laughs> you guys are cool with that, aren't you? Certainly. I would love to do it. Actually, I, I think, though, your listeners would be far more interested in seeing you get, uh, <laughs> get a little soggy. <laughs> I agreed. Uh, no respect. I tell you, I got no respect. All right. <laughs> Go to MyFaithRadio.com. Make sure you get tickets. They're going fast. They really are. And um, MyFaithRadio.com. Live event, March 26th. Thanks to Dr. Jim Bilby and Dr. Peter Capsher for being here. It's been great. Yeah, great to see you, Bill. All right. be without the book of Psalms? Well, where would, we be, where would we be without God's word, period? But the book of Psalms has uh, given us uh, a context for our joys, our sorrows, our angers, our doubts, and most of all, our thanksgivings. David Taylor has written a book called Open and Unafraid, the Psalms as a Guide to Life. He's my guest on the show today. David, welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, I love the Psalms. I think everybody does. You too, huh? I do. I, I've, I've loved them since Eugene Peterson introduced me to them when I was in seminary about uh, 20, 25 years ago. And you worked uh, with Eugene for quite a bit? Yes. uh, In seminary, I took a few courses with him and then became friends subsequently. And and then again, you know, was able to partner with him and and Bono on on that film in which they discussed the Psalms together. Yeah, fantastic. So tell me your motivation for Open and Unafraid. You know, after the film came out, 
uh, about five years ago, I found myself reading more in the Psalms, books about the Psalms, talking to people about the Psalms. And I discovered there was a gap in the the bookshelf, as it were. There were some really wonderful scholarly books, some really good daily devotionals, but not much in this middle space that would offer something meaty but accessible as an entry point into the Psalms. When I was a child and in my younger years, I only approached the Psalms in piecemeal and occasional fashion. And it wasn't until later uh, in, in my later 20s and 30s that I discovered that I, I was in the minority position in church history, that the church for 1800, 1900 years had made a habit of reading the Psalms on a regular basis, weekly, daily, monthly, mm -hmm. annually. And my church tradition made very little of the Psalms. And it was in a course with Eugene Peterson. I asked him a question at the end of, of the course, this marvelous course on, on biblical spirituality, uh, a vision for the Christian life that we might derive from, from Scripture. But he'd never given us any advice, uh, not one piece of advice. So I asked him on the last day of class if he had at least one thing he could suggest to us. And he suggested that we read a psalm a day and get to the end and start over. And that's what I did for several years. I would read one a day. 150 days and then start back over. And I did that for a number of days, then took a break. And so I kind of, I, I come in and out of that, out of that habit of, of daily reading. So David, what did you learn about the history of Psalms? Well, the first thing I learned is that for, let's say the first 1500 years, it's almost the exclusive book that Christians are praying and singing. Mm. There aren't many other songs that are sung, maybe some of the canticles in Scripture, maybe an occasional hymn here and there, but it's largely both personal, family, and, and corporate worship. People are praying and reading the Psalms, and, uh, and, and then you have these different pockets in, in, say, the modern and contemporary era that make a great deal of the Psalms and other pockets or traditions less so, but you'll also find the Psalms all throughout uh, contemporary culture. You find it in movies and songs and uh, in, in poetry and in presidential addresses. It shows up all the time. And I think your timing on this book, David, is uh, quite good. And I think we're, uh, I think right now in our world, we are, um, need a book like this. And I would love to hear why you think this book is especially important, like right now. One of the arguments that I make in the book is that the Psalms are like a devotional antidote to our primordial sin, hmm. which was to hide from God and to run away. And then as it relates to one another, we shut each other out and, and shut down. And that the Psalms are given to us to help us to open up, to become vulnerable and honest and true and, and, and brutally realistic about the condition of our hearts, of our lives, of our society, of both the personal and the public. And things, it seems to me, are becoming more and more tense, more and more fraught, not just on the political landscape, but certainly on the healthcare landscape. This coronavirus is causing many people to become afraid and to wonder, is there a God in whom I can take refuge? Uh, is there a place for my fears? And the Psalms are this wonderfully realistic book that understands 
how broken our world is, and it offers us words and songs in order to name the things that we feel uh, in the deepest places of our hearts and to bring them out in the presence of God and bring them out into a space where we can be vulnerable with one another rather than hiding and turning each other into enemies. So I think it's it's an incredible resource that we could and should take advantage of in times when we are tempted to become our worst self and to imagine the least of one another. Yeah, that's beautifully stated, David. I really appreciate that response. I'm curious as to how studying Psalms and reading through them uh, on a re- regular basis, how that has affected your prayer life. Well, one of the things I discovered when I stir- first started reading Psalms regularly was that I had prior to that regular habit, I'd only seen certain things in the Psalms that I instinctually liked or uh, felt sympathetic to, or that my church upbringing had told me to pay attention to. So Psalm 139 has Mm -hmm. this wonderful, beautiful language about being known in our mother's womb, and, and God's thoughts are precious to us. It's a beautiful song, but it ends in a way that many, many church traditions actually avoid uh, reading, and it ends with sort of this very grim, dark, enemy-type language. But I think the reason why it is there on purpose is to help us reckon with the fact that wickedness happens not just out there, but wickedness happens in here, in our own interior lives. I think the other thing that I noticed is that the Psalms make space for both joy and sorrow to coexist in a way that our common experience or or ideas of happiness just doesn't know what to make place, uh, what, what to do with or how to make space with lament and sorrow and grief, and we feel that it is a, a, a zero-sum gain. If I'm happy, I can't be sad. If I'm sad, I can't be happy. But the Psalms show us that our, our pilgrimage here in this earthly sojourn involves both sadness and joy, mine and others, in a way that perhaps the Psalms might not only enable me to be present to these joys and sorrows that coexist in me personally, in my family life, my work life, but enabled to cultivate in me a true sympathy and empathy for others so that when I pray, say, Psalm 100, when I'm feeling great, but my neighbor is feeling sorrowful or has just lost his mother, I can extend sort of a sense of sympathy. Likewise, if I pray Psalm 51, when I'm feeling sorrowful, but my neighbor is feeling joyful, sort of this virtue or this habit in my heart space is able to hold many things together in a way that I think is often very difficult for us if we have not been trained in essentially the prayer book of Jesus, not just the prayer book of Israel. Mm, That's really, really interesting, David. Another emotion that we see in Psalms uh, is anger, and that gets aired out uh, regularly in the Psalms. I'd love for you to talk about that. Yeah, you know, anger is a funny thing, (laughs) if I can put it that way. (laughs) It's not funny at all. Uh, It's certainly not funny for me personally, because it's something that I have struggled with my whole life, and I've not known what to do with my angers. I think two things that the Psalms help me to understand are that anger is is a variation on the theme or a subspecies of lament. Anger is lament to the 10th power. It's sort of this acute experience of sorrow when we feel that 
harm or damage or loss of life is, is threatened upon us. Or when we see somebody we loved being threatened with a loss or uh, uh, of life or, or dehumanized experience. And so the Psalms offer us this kind of curse or imprecatory language, which is terrifying. And, and Bonhoeffer, the mid-century German uh, theologian and martyr, said we ought not to pray these Psalms unless we have reckoned seriously with the cross of Jesus. But they're there as many uh, careful students of the Psalms would remind us in order to rescue us from turning our, our revenge fantasies into reality. So then when we do feel harmed and we do often feel truly harmed, we do have real experiences of, of enemies in the world or, or spiritually, um, the, these Psalms are given to us in order to bring all these acute, intense emotions before the very face of God so that we can be healed and rescued from the desire to, to, to turn an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a harm for a harm. And that harm might be towards another, or we might do harm against ourselves if we feel that God is giving us a raw deal or not taking care of our, us. We may self-sabotage as a way to get revenge against God himself. So the Psalms are there as a kind of rescue operation, both to name how we truly feel uh, to give edited language to our unedited emotions, but also to rescue us from these tendencies to want to harm ourselves or others around us. All right, David, if you don't mind, I'd like to take a short break. David Taylor is my guest. His book is called Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life. We'll take a very short break and be right back. In the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He is my defense, I shall not be moved. He is my defense, I shall not be moved. He Welcome back to the show. So glad to have David Taylor as my guest. He's written a great book called Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life. Uh, David, I know in Chapter 9 you talked about enemies, and it seems that pops up quite a bit in Psalms. Deliver me, O God, from my enemies. And I would love for you to t- talk about your understanding of, of enemies and how the Bible teaches and how the Bible helps us understand who those enemies are. You know, like anger... Enemies is one of those hard parts of the Psalms. Uh, It's the part that sometimes, again, gets removed from our worship music repertoire, Mm -hmm. from our prayers, uh, you know, in in worship or even personally. Uh, On the other hand, we may find ourselves indulging, uh, relishing (laughs) unduly, inordinately this enemy language because we do feel that we want to give somebody what they're you know, what they're owed. Um, we want to exact revenge and this enemy language, uh, nurses these intemperate passions in us. But again, the Psalms provide this holy median space, uh, this holy virtuous space where it gives us permission to reckon realistically with the world that we really live in, that we really live in a broken and often cruel 
world that is full of human and natural disasters. Enemies are sometimes uh, other human beings, other cities, other groups, other people groups. Enemies in the Psalms are sometimes death. Uh, natural destructions are experienced as, as enemies. A sickness can be experienced as an enemy. Anything that threatens life in the context of the Psalms can be named as an enemy. I think one of the things that I, I try to communicate in the book is that we read this enemy language in the Psalms through Christological eyes, through the eyes of Jesus. And one of the surprising things when we look at the Gospels, when we look at Jesus's life and ministry that is defined from beginning to end by the Psalms themselves, is that Jesus doesn't deny us the right or the permission to name our enemies. He does, and he himself names enemies like Satan and his closest friends, which is, again, similar to the Psalms, or these other forces, principalities and powers, to use St. Paul's language. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he invites us and charges us to bless them and to pray for them and to love them. So it's this dual uh, charge, both to name, reckon with, to bless and pray for, that is fundamentally impossible apart from the Spirit of God. And of course, the Psalms do a great job talking about uh, the joy of life and and also the the pain of death. Psalm one sixteen says, "Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His faithful ones." And there, of course, there's other many verses that talk about just singing a, a, a song, a brand new song to the Lord, worship the Lord, sing to Him. It's the it, the teaching is is all over in Psalms. You get a little bit of everything, don't you? You do, and I, I think that's why I, I titled the book uh, A Guide for Life, because everything that you have ever thought or felt can probably be found in the Psalms. John Calvin called it the anatomy of the soul. Martin Luther called it the little Bible. Tim Keller calls it the medicine chest of the heart. Everything that you have ever felt in your interior life and in your public life is played out somehow, some way in the Psalms and I went through Hurricane Harvey a, a few years ago, and, and we did see death up close. We did feel the, the chaos waters swell around us. We did flee the city, uh, and others were not so, so lucky. And it's one of the things I write about in, in the Psalms uh, related to, to, to death and, uh, and Psalms related to life and to see that, that the Lord is sovereign both over life he is the one whose spirit gives us life, and he is sovereign ultimately against all the forces of death, even if that means that his sovereignty is expressed in in the resurrection of the life that yet awaits us. So, David, I'm curious as to how your relationship goes with psalms. I mean, sometimes I will read a psalm, and I'll just kind of go through it, and the next time I'll read it, and I'll go, how did I miss this psalm? And the next <laughs> time I go through it, I go, okay. Uh, I'm memorizing this. I'm going to learn this word for word. You know, what is it like for you? Well, you know, as a habit of reading the Psalms somewhat regularly, somewhat daily for the past 20 years, you do start to see things that you didn't on a first or second or fifth pass. And and they begin to delight you at a a new level. and, And I love that. Or they begin to convict you at a new level, or you begin to see how Psalms are talking to each other across the aisles, as it were, how Psalm 3, 4, and 5 are, are the, the, the trilogy of morning and evening Psalms, and they echo Genesis, one language of this 
God being present to us in our morning times and our evening times, and certainly in the watches of the night when we are most vulnerable. I'm, I'm preaching in a couple of weeks on Psalm 23, and at first I dreaded preaching on Psalm 23. It's the most familiar song. It's all white noise to people, but I sat with it. I attended to it. I did what the Psalms say I'm supposed to do, which is to meditate, which the Hebrew ver- verb there is just to chew on it like a, a, a dog on a bone. And all of a sudden, the first verse popped out at me, and I realized this first verse of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, was, as it were, the very heart of the gospel, um, both speaking over against the that which Adam and Eve chose to not believe, that the Lord was not their shepherd, that he would not provide for them, and so they chose to provide for themselves. And again, Jesus' ministry, in a sense, is playing out this true shepherd role. And I just was, I was not just ministered to at a deep, I was deeply convicted of all the ways in which I, in my own life, actually don't believe that the Lord is my shepherd. So I wanted to not just think about these things, but through the course of my day, say out loud in the places where I maybe feel tempted to not believe it, that the Lord, you, O Lord, are my shepherd. Please be my shepherd this day. So a combination of things, but ultimately, and I write about this in the book, I need other people. And the Psalms know that we cannot do this faithful living, faithful praying by ourselves. So I'm I'm reaching out for friends to say, hey, please help me in these places of my life to embrace at a deeper level, transformative level, the truth that the Lord is my shepherd. And I find myself uh, just loving the Lord more and more when I uh, spend more time in the Psalms. Even when you go through a difficult Psalm like uh, 88 and you realize Mm -hmm. that, boy, I don't know if I would have wanted to have kept that in in the Psalms because the psalm ends with no hope. And that's just so unlike um, most psalms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the thing that you discover in the psalms, again, as, as Martin Luther you know, calls it the little Bible, everything, all, all the basic, as it were, character traits of God are found here. And they're found in this, in this beautiful and very purposeful interrelation that that in the same psalm or a pair of psalms you encounter god as good shepherd and just judge or as powerful god of angel armies and comforting god of rest of refuge and again i think our temptation is to home in on one thing about god and yet the psalms are bearing witness to this this fullness of the character of god that would cause us to know and love him at a at a deeper a deeper truer level Okay, David, what about singing these psalms? I mean, the musical element, um, what that adds and, and how it enriches our faith through praise. Well, one of the things I talk about in the book is, and I have a chapter on poetry, is how the psalms are themselves poetry and originate in an oral society, an oral tradition. And so to truly understand what a psalm means, you really have to say it out loud and singing it is just this exponential way to, to, to sound out or to resound the truth. And when you sing the Psalms, you begin to perceive connections that you hadn't before. And some things may get lost in translation from the Hebrew poetry to English poetry. But I think we have really wonderful translations in, in many different Bible translations who really try to keep that poetic element and you and you hear for example how in psalm 8 or psalm 19 
words are talking to each other in very poetic ways, like alliterative ways that are, are helping us to see how something holds together or a meaning is brought together through two things that you hadn't imagined being together. And those are things that we discover only, I think, through uh, you know, singing, chanting, reading out loud. And so this is a, a tradition that the church has maintained for, for 2,000 years. And uh, I, I love discovering all kinds of ways in which musicians have made music to the Psalms and, uh, and I try to make it a habit of lifting, listening to as many different styles and practices and traditions because I hear new things from them. All right, David, speaking of uh, music, what was it like uh, working with Bono um, and, and, of course, Eugene Peterson? Well, it was a once in a life. I don't think it'll ever happen again. Yeah. So I'm grateful that it happened. Uh, there was certainly a, a, a pinch myself uh, moment when yeah. I was sitting across from the two of them thinking, I'm the last person who would ever imagine himself sitting across from the man who wrote the Bible, as it were, and the man who has defined rock and roll music for the past 40 years. But I'll tell you what was one of the most lovely, refreshing things about both of them is that both of them were utterly unself-aware and unpretentious, very at home in their own skin, very kind, very generous, very hospitable, not just towards one another, but you know, a small film crew of five, the five guys, Bono introduced himself to each one. And then when he left an hour later, he, he, he said goodbye to each one of them by name. Like he remembered every one of their names and he brought gifts for people. So there's something very, um, beautiful about the integrity of who he is as a person. And regardless of what you think about his music or, you know, maybe some of his comments in public, there's something very true about Bono, and you see that played out in his almost 40-year marriage to his wife, in his friendships that he's maintained since he was a teenager. So that that, I, that was what really left a deep impression on me, was who he was as a person, and certainly Eugene and Jan, most unassuming, unpretentious people you would ever have met. And that was just such a wonderful way to make the rest of us at home with them. Yeah, and Bono had a pretty vast knowledge and intellect of the Psalms, didn't he? He did. And, and, you know, this is something that people may or may not know, but uh, after we filmed, this was April 19th, 2015, a, a couple of days later, we, my wife and I landed back in Houston and I saw on my email that I had a note from him and he was apologizing because he felt like he'd not come truly prepared and he wanted to make it up to me somehow and was asking how he might do that. Of course, that was a remarkable thing for me. And long, long, long story short, I caught up with him uh, when uh, U2 landed in, in New York City, and we sat together for a second series of interviews, which you, you can see some of these interviews online on Fuller Studio. But he came uh, in one of the most amazingly overprepared ways I had ever met anybody uh, to talk about the Psalms. He had spent an hour that morning with his chaplain. He'd spent an hour by himself reading and praying, and it was such a delight to see him bubbling, like effervescently excited to talk about the Psalms. Yeah, that's really fun. Great story and, and great experience. Fun experience. Once in a lifetime. Really nice. Uh, David, thank you so much for doing the show and uh, great, uh, great book. Congratulations on it. And I, I well, know that you. you have grown in your faith as a result. Now we in turn can do the same. Well, that would be my hope that certainly I would love for people to buy and read it. But really more, more than that is that people would read and fall in love, love with the Psalms right. of that would make me so happy. Yeah, it's a good uh, good book to fall in love with. 
So thank you uh, for doing the show. David Taylor has been my guest. His book is called Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life. And another thing, if you've not made uh, gotten your reservation for the live event coming up on March 26th, it's right, going to be right here at the University of Northwestern. Make sure you get a ticket and a seat. You're going to have a great time. Dr. Jim Vilby and Dr. Peter Kapsner will be my guests talking about living in a post-Christian world. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Time to ring the bell. See you next week.